book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. The show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you're interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, for October's behind-the-scenes episode, Laura Rossi joins me to talk about her role in the publishing world. Laura is a public relations expert, digital strategist, podcast producer, and published author. For over three decades, she has led book publicity campaigns for best-selling authors, as well as for national companies and brands in the lifestyle, nonprofit, and art and design industries. Laura worked in-house at top publishers, including Random House, Viking Penguin, and W.W. Norton before founding Laura Rossi Public Relations. She is the producer of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Exactly Right Network. Laura is a published writer and author. Her writing appears in Make Mine a Double by Gina Baraka and The Grateful Life by Nina Lesowitz, as well as in the collections Fast Funny Women and Fast Fierce Women. She has appeared in The New York Times, Psychology Today, The Providence Journal, The Huffington Post, and more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Laura. How are you today? Hi, Cindy. I'm great. I'm so delighted to be here. We've uh, talked about doing this interview for a long time, and the day's finally arrived. I'm so excited because I love this behind-the-scenes series. And as you mentioned, you and I talked a while back about you coming on for the behind-the-scenes. And now you're here, so I'm thrilled to pieces. Thank you. I love your show. Well, I very much appreciate it. And you're providing me guests from time to time, which is so nice. So let's dive into what you do. Why don't you tell me, because you do so many things and I don't want to get it wrong. So you tell me all about what you are doing these days. Great. So we might need more than one episode if I really know <laughs> the details, but that is so I true. I dive in and say that I own my own uh, public relations agency and the name is Laura Rossi Public Relations. I also wear a hat as a podcast producer. So you and I have a lot to talk about there. 
and um, I do some volunteer work. So just kind of running through the top, my kind of main day job is running Laura Rossi Public Relations. And through my agency, I create and run publicity campaigns for authors, books, and publishing companies. And that means I launch books, I book interviews. If you hear a guest on NPR or you see a book in People magazine, I'm usually the behind the scenes person that helped land that placement. I also help um, my clients with digital media and social media. And then on the producer side, I book guests for a podcast called Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. This is a weekly podcast show about parenting. We're part of the Exactly Right Podcast Network, which is part of the larger family Wondery. And Dr. Dan started out as my author, and now we have a successful podcast. And we'll probably get to this a little later, but my agency time started after working in-house for several of the large publishing companies in New York City. Well, that's what I want to ask you about is how you got started in the book world. Well, it is still kind of a pinch me story, Cindy. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that I started in book publishing in 1991, and I still feel the same level of excitement and enthusiasm and passion as I did almost on the first day of my first job. In college, I was an English major, and I um, you know, was looking for something to do kind of outside of my major that would broaden some of the places that uh, English majors could you know, get jobs. So thinking professors, teachers, et cetera. And I thought, well, you know, is there anything else people do with this terrific degree? And that led me to an editorial assistant position uh, for a professor and a journal. And through that little part-time job, the world of book publishing and magazines, specifically in New York City, opened up to me. I grew up in Connecticut, but I, I didn't realize what level of hub the publishing world was, uh, you know, in Manhattan. So my undergraduate experience ended up connecting me to lots of incredible places and people. And one of those contacts was Viking Books, which at the time was part of Penguin USA and is now part of the larger company, Penguin Random House. And believe it or not, I had an interview and a job offer you know, within hours of meeting with Paul Slovak, who is a legend in book publishing. He was the director of publicity at Viking. He recently retired, but that was my first job. And I mean, I dove in during a time in publishing when there was so much happening with authors, you know, careers launching, careers getting bigger. And it was just, you know, kind of the, the nostalgic days that people look back and talk about now. So, you know, I met Allen Ginsberg and I met Ken Kesey and Stephen King. I was the person who booked Tara McMillan on her first Oprah Winfrey show. So it was just this time of, Books launching, lots of media, publicity was, you know, kind of, we would have our choice of shows and I've never looked back. So what did you do after you were at Viking? So um, Viking was just such a great place to start. And I learned so much from my boss, Paul, and all of my bosses really have been mentors and role models. So after Viking, I continued, you know, to work on lots of different books at WW Norton Company. I moved over there and worked under the direction of Louise Brockett, who is another incredible, legendary publishing person. Louise is still at Norton. And in fact, I saw her not that long ago because Norton celebrated their 100th anniversary. So they had a huge party in New York where they brought in former you know, employees, kind of, you know, it was like an alumni reunion. And then there were incredible authors there, um, Paul Krugman, and I, I can't even think of the list. It's so star-studded. So I worked there for um, a few years. And again, that was where I, I feel like I strengthened my role and expertise. I had a more senior position as a publicity manager. 
but I was really carving out my role working with a lot of the top A-list authors. So those were the big books that had big launches. So I met and worked with Wynton Marsalis of Jazz at Lincoln Center, who's, you know, a genius trumpet player, Jane Brody of the New York Times, and, you know, really also fulfilled this desire to work in a bit more of a literary space. Viking was kind of a blend of commercial literary, Norton, very literary, you know, think of the Norton Anthology of Literature and Poetry. And believe it or not, you know, I was super happy there, but an opportunity crossed my desk to go work for um, another great boss, Carissa Hayes at Bantam Doubleday Dell and the Dial Press, which later became Random House. And as I said earlier, Random House is now Penguin Random House. But there I really uh, carved out another level of my career by becoming the associate director of the publicity department. So we had a staff of 13. When my boss went on maternity leave, I was actually the acting director. So I was doing some management and I was also doing kind of big picture thinking and helping craft the campaigns, thinking outside of the box on what can we do to launch authors. And, and that's kind of become a bit of my own brand where there's traditional things you do in book publishing, you know, getting reviews and interviews, doing launches at bookstores, whether, you know, today they're virtually or in person. But I like to think about the things you can do that are a little bit different. So collaborations or partnerships for Wynton Marsalis, we ended up doing book signings on his Jazz at Lincoln Center tour. And we brought in bookstores and did events in the lobbies of like these beautiful concert halls. So that was incredible for me. And what ended up happening, you know, after kind of the merger and different sort of personal life changes where I got married, I worked outside of publishing for a little while. And then I launched my own agency. And that's Laura Rossi Public Relations. And when did you launch that? So I launched around, it was around 2009, 2010. And that was just, I had worked with authors my whole career, you know, starting from the early 90s, Cindy. And then based on the economy, the dot-com boom, and my work had expanded to work with companies and nonprofits and some other um, consumer-type businesses alongside of still doing some publishing, I worked for a couple of ad agencies and PR agencies in the Boston area. So I had moved from the New York, New York City area. And that was where I really got my stride. And that's one of the reasons I founded my own agency, because I was able to blend two worlds of publicity and public relations experience to kind of create my own model for books and authors, where I was kind of ticking off the boxes, doing all the great traditional PR. But because there were early adopters in lifestyle spaces and fashion um, and even some businesses, I was one of the first people that was doing a lot with social media and digital. And that's just because sometimes publishing has a little bit of a wait and see attitude, wanting to, you know, decide, do these things really move books? You know, is social media something that you know, we need to require our authors to do? So I feel like I was a little bit ahead of the, the curve with that. And I have a blend of, you know, all types of clients, even to this day, where, you know, some are small businesses, most are authors or publishers, though. Well, I was going to say your timing would work so well with social media. So that makes sense that that's something you'd be involved in. because right as you were opening your business was when social media was really taking off or beginning to take off, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And you know, today with all of the work that you do, and in particular, um, you know, with your podcast and even this series, that it is a required part of everything we do now in kind of all, all places in the media world, but particularly in book publishing, it's really become, you know, a foundational piece of how authors have brands and platforms and then publishers as well. And you mentioned that, that often that's asked of authors. If you've got a debut author 
or someone who's going in a different direction, the publishers really want to know what does your social media profile look like? Absolutely. Absolutely. So how about getting involved in the podcasting world? So the podcasting world, that story is a terrific one, Cindy. And basically, it's confession time. I started out in the podcasting world as an early listener when people were kind of scratching their head and saying, podcast or pod what? You know, and I had already been listening to some true crime, some versions of what, you know, kind of became NPR type podcasts. And of course, like most people, I listened to Serial, which is one of the kind of first podcasts that grabbed listeners, told a story and, you know, made us basically be sitting on the edge of our seat in much the same way that books or audiobooks do. So for me, there became a natural progression as podcasts started getting more popular. I've always been a listener to audiobooks. And one of my authors had an opportunity to fulfill a dream of his own. He had always wanted to either um, have a radio show or some kind of broadcast platform. And his name is Dr. Dan Peters. And we together launched and learned on the job uh, how to run a podcast. And I am still um, the producer many years later. Were you so surprised how much work goes into a podcast? Well, we're, we're going to need a different episode to talk about that, Cindy. And I'm, I am sure you can fill the airwaves um, with even more details than I can. But yes, podcasting, you know, there's so much work that goes behind podcasting from sourcing guests, vetting guests, working on scripts, figuring out, you know, exactly what the topics are and how that will flow. And then thinking about promoting and getting kind of the gold from your show out to listeners, whether it's through social media or some strategic publicity. But I love it. The thing I love the most, you know, having been a media person and particularly in the book world for three decades to see a new form of media that is powerful and influential, yet still accessible, feels very democratic. It's really exciting to be able to pitch these shows, to be on the other side as a producer. I really think this piece of audio and the audio world, I don't know where it's going to end up, but it feels, it feels changing and transformative. I think that's exactly right. And you can take it with you anywhere now with the way our phones work and everything. So wherever you go, you can end up listening just like music. Absolutely. And I love, um, you know, as we're sitting here talking and, you know, I'm, I'm always referring folks to listen to your show and in particular, you know, the behind the scenes episodes for authors and colleagues. I love that talented people have an opportunity to reach other people through this medium. It's, it's very exciting. I agree. And that's how we first connected with my behind the scenes, because you represent Audiophile Magazine. And I thought, oh, that would be such a fun interview. And I just loved learning all about them. Well, I will never forget the day that I found your note um, in LinkedIn, which again, for all the listeners here, a lot of the behind the scenes with publicity does happen through social media. So it's important to maintain your platforms and check your inboxes. So yes, I have the role as the publicity and social media director for Audiophile Magazine. The magazine is founded by um, and still run by Robin Witten. And it's the number one resource for audiobook reviews and recommendations. And again, lucky me, this is another moment where a passion and uh, an emerging of my professional experience came together. And my role with Audiophile really started out much like how you and I connected about Robin, Cindy, which is I regularly pitched Robin and Audiophile, different authors, audiobooks, and ways to be creative with publicity. And we just speak the same language, always listening. I was an early, early adopter of audiobooks. 
especially in the beginning of my publishing career. I mean, many listeners, if they're you know a little closer to my age, will remember books on tape and CDs. And as a library fan for my whole life, I would basically borrow these you know big giant almost suitcases with you know the tapes in them or the CDs in them. And so my passion for audiobooks, narrators, and really you know honing in on what makes an audiobook work that is connected to the performance rather than just the story written by the author has made it a, a very natural fit. Audiophile also has a podcast. So again, I, I get to cross lots of <laughs> T's and dot I's of things I love that are now also part of my day job. We have a show called Behind the Mic. It's a Monday through Friday short form podcast. And we we recommend, we have five editors and they you know take turns and speak to our host, Joe Reed, about a great listen and something to add to your to listen to list. So it's it's really fun. And, you know, I just the hard work that you and I are talking about goes into Audiophile magazine and it goes into the podcast as well. So it's really high quality editorial coverage. It's such a great resource. I talk to groups regularly about books and people will often say I listen to audiobooks. And I'm like, I have the perfect website for you. Because I think people get attached to a certain audiobook narrator. And so it's a great way to be able to put in that narrator see what else they have narrated, and also just learn about different books and read about how they're narrated and just the whole process. I think it's fabulous. Yes. Well, thank you. And if anyone listening wants to check it out, audiophilemagazine.com, because I am a publicist, I'm, I'm going to drop some links in here. But really, you know, and truly from a personal point of view, I used to reference the website a lot. And it, it really helped me kind of figure out what types of book I like to listen to on audio. For me, one area that is just an always go to, I love the memoirs that are read by the authors, you know, whether they're celebrity or influencers. So there's certain categories that people, if you haven't tried audiobooks, you might want to explore and see, you know, what your ear likes. And I don't know if you want to agree with me on this by um, nodding your head, Cindy, that listeners can't see that. But there are so many books we were saying at the top of our show that, I mean, we can't possibly read them all in print or listen to them all as an audiobook. So to have the ability to consume as many books as we can in ways that work for us, to me, just feels like, you know, such a blessing. I agree. And I mainly do nonfiction on audio because I am definitely a consumer of fiction by reading. It just is the way my brain processes it. But I, I agree with you. Like, I love celebrity memoir where they're reading it. Like, I just did the John Stamos and the Henry Winkler, and they're just oh. delightful listening to them telling their story, but also other nonfiction as well. And you can speed it up. And so it just works for me. And that way, if my mind wanders a little bit, I don't miss any part of the fictional tale. And I can reverse if I need to. But most of the time, you haven't really missed anything, and it just keeps going. You know, so but but nonfiction works great for me on audio. And that way, like you said, I can consume more books. It's really personal. I, I also love nonfiction, but I I love diving into even if sometimes I've heard it before, a classic John Grisham, for example, you know, some of those kind of page turner legal thrillers are like a go to for me on audiobooks. But then I just downloaded the new Carrie Washington. We're talking on October 2nd, that just came out um, her memoir. And I am just I cannot wait to listen to that. I think it's going to be one of these. I don't want to be interrupted listens, <laughs> but I'm gonna have to you know keep my eye on the clock and, and, and still, you know, do my day job, I guess. Exactly. I've heard it's fabulous. And I want to listen to that one too. I'll let you know. So what does a typical workday look like for you? So my day starts with, again, lucky me, reading. Around 6.45, I kind of look at all the headlines, 
I do read the New York Times. I always have read the New York Times, but I also check, you know, other major newspaper headlines and just try to, you know, kind of tap into what's happening. I'm a big NPR person. Obviously, again, listening, listening, and always listening. So if I'm not doing an audiobook or a podcast, um, I have NPR on or another, you know, public radio show. Then um, I do get some daily newsletters. Some are publishing world ones. Others are just, you know, kind of for fun. Coffee and breakfast, usually trying to get everything done and hitting my five different inboxes based on clients and work. By nine, I'm usually doing my active work day. And I schedule each day a little differently depending on meetings or Zooms. Certain things are launching monthly for me. Other things are on a weekly schedule. So for example, on Thursdays, when the new Parent Footprint episode drops, I spend that morning just making sure we're up on social media, that the podcast is on all the listening platforms. So for listeners hearing this reference, it just means that when our show goes out, there still needs to be like a manual check, I guess you would call it, Cindy, to just make sure, oh, there it is on Apple. Yes, it's up on Spotify. You know, just sometimes there are coding and tech glitches that have nothing to do with our show, but that might require, you know, something to be resent or just could be delayed and it hasn't uploaded yet. So I like to make sure all of that's in place. There are certain days of the week where I have like a little mini to-do list, but because I own my own business, you know, I do have the gift of structuring my days based on on workflow. And I try to keep a lot of time on Fridays without too many meetings so that I can do some of the more housekeeping items like memos, or if I have a longer email to return, or if I need to write a proposal. How do you decide what authors you're going to take on? So I am in a very grateful position to have leads sent to me by colleagues or friends or publishers or other authors. And then, um, you know, I might also have an eye on someone that I think I would be a good fit with. So, you know, a lot of the courting happens on email and, you know, through mutual friends introducing me to folks. And then I like to do, you know, if it's a new book, I try to see if I can do some reading, even if it's in the manuscript format, just to make sure that the material is a match. So I guess backing up a minute, you know, what I will do is I'll take a look at the initial opportunity however it comes to me. And I try to be, you know, very timely with my responses, very much, you know, honoring the person who's reached out to me. If it's just not a book that I think is going to fit for me, either work-wise or content-wise, I try to really get back to that person immediately. And if I can offer, you know, another possible solution of a colleague or, or a friend, you know, I'll try to give a solid recommendation after making sure that person is also taking clients. And then, um, you know, it really does start with the content and the timing. So the content has to speak to me on some level. Because I've done this for about 30 years, Cindy, I do have, and I never take this for granted, the ability to pick and choose a little bit. So although I've worked on every kind of book, I'm now in a position where I don't have to say yes to every, I'm going to say, you know, academic type of business book, for example. If something comes across my desk that's in that category, my instinct now is a little bit probably not. And it's not so much because I can't, it's because I don't think I want to. So I find that I love nonfiction. It could be in the parenting space. It could be in the self-help space. It could be a terrific memoir. I do like fiction. So that, that kind of fulfills you know, a part of just my personal taste working with authors that are you know, writing fiction and being creative um, around characters. And part of it is my instinct on just the chemistry between the author and I. I like to book out as far as a year if I can with authors. So that's where the timing piece comes in. Sadly, some authors don't realize 
and I, you know, there's no finger pointing here, but they may not realize until close to their publication date that they might need some outside help with publicity. And I do occasionally get emails that break my heart of, you know, my book's coming out in four weeks. Can I hire you? Can you help me? And in that case, a lot of times I have to pass, but I will at least try to find a friend who maybe has an opening in his or her schedule. Occasionally I can be hired for a, a mini little project, but it's really the timing determines so much. So even if the greatest project came across my desk, chances are something that's two weeks away, I probably have to say no. And I might then say, let's talk for your paperback. So your advice to authors is if you know you have a book that's been purchased and you're going to want a publicist, please reach out as soon as possible. Yes. And that goes, I think, for most freelance publicists and you know literary PR agencies. The sooner, the better. Everyone has a little bit of a timeline that they like to work from and they feel like they can do their best work, Cindy. But I'm really kind of the year out kind of gal because for me, the time is is well spent when we have space to think creatively and to talk about goals that you know might be pre-pub and post-pub. But you know, I can do things six months out. Anything shorter can be can be challenging just because when you're looking at deadlines to get out the galleys, which are the advanced copies of the book, or um, some of the longer lead places, six months is kind of the magic number to just make sure you're getting into the conversation with editors and producers that this book is coming out. That's so true. And you want to have time, as you just said, to come up with creative ideas and different things. And you can't do all that if you only have a couple of weeks. It's true. And the most disappointing thing, I think, for a lot of authors is realizing they do need a publicist, they've started too late, and opportunities are are shut off for them because they just didn't get something pitched in time. And I think what happens there is they're thinking they're fine with what they have in-house, and then they're realizing, I probably really could use some more support. Yes. And that, that that's a question, that's a fair question to ask, you know, early on in your publishing team meetings, or if you are an author who has an agent, to just get kind of an upfront sense of even just the general plan for your book so that you know, okay, these are in the publisher column. These are the things I might do as the author. And if this other work needs to be done, either I'm going to do it or I might look at hiring someone. Yes. And I'm sure it's also complicated and new and just trying to navigate it all is difficult. So it can be where all of a sudden the author is like, oh gosh, I really should have done this months ago. Yes. And I feel like for every author that is feeling like they're late to having a publicist join their team, it doesn't hurt to ask. You know, I would still say even close to a pub date, put your feelers out, talk to your friends. Sometimes there is the ability to have kind of a rapid fire quick campaign added, or maybe someone who does have time to do something like book you on a blog tour or, you know, work with you on uh, a bookstagram campaign. There are things you can do outside of hiring a publicist to work with you, you know, six to 12 months out, there are supplemental ways and other vendors that us publicists trust and know that we would recommend that, you know, you might not necessarily come across. And then if it is a hardcover, you know, there is always time to kind of dive in in advance of the paperback. If your publisher, you know, is assuring you that you'll have a paperback, there might be ways to launch that version of the book with, uh, you know, kind of that time on your side ability by working with a publicist early. And that's interesting that you mentioned the blog and Bookstagram or tours, because I feel like there are more and more of those. I just see them all the time on Bookstagram now. Yes, there are. And I think, you know, when you and I were kind of prepping for our interview today, one thing that I struggled with was 
you know, I'm all for folks, you know, being ambitious and figuring out their place in the publishing industry and, you know, how to creatively put their own passion into helping authors. That said, I have seen, you know, in terms of a trending item, there are more and more hire me for my bookstagram campaign, hire me to do a blog tour for you, hire me and I will, you know, get you X, Y, and Z. And, you know, those quick fixes, like in any industry, I think need to be approached with a little bit of caution. I think there are some trusted individuals that that work with authors and publishers on blog tours. And one of the ways to vet those people is to actually get recommendations from your publisher, from other author friends. And if you're interviewing publicists or you hire a publicist, we usually have kind of our favorites list. You know, one thing that can be just hard for me to see when I'm sitting in the PR chair, because I am a purist, is people thinking if they pay $500 to this person, it's going to help sell books and $700 to that person because they're going to get, you know, 10 images put on Instagram. And, you know, those are hard things for all of us to measure. And so I would say feeling panicked and thinking, throwing money at bloggers or bookstagram or tours, you know, take a breath and just, you know, kind of do your research because those things I do think can help when they're plugged in at the right time and strategically. But I have seen, Cindy, so many popping up. And, you know, if I haven't heard of them and my colleagues haven't heard of them. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm feeling like the jury is still out on whether or not that $500 to $1,000 shouldn't be spent a different way. I had no idea people were charging $500 to $1,000. I'm like, whew. Right. On some of my social media, I do that stuff for free when I love a book. Well, and that's, I guess, what I was just yeah. going to say was like, to me, the important part of Bookstagram is the authentic part of it. So like I'm posting about books because I honestly liked them. If somebody was paying me $500 to put up five slides of a book, I don't know, that kind of takes away from that for me. Like I, I'm only posting about the book because I was paid to versus I'm posting about the book because I read it and I loved it. So I don't know, to me, that just sort of, they don't really seem to go together. Now that's different than the bookstagram or tours. And I do see a couple that seem mm-hmm. to have taken off and are doing quite well and have a good name behind them. And then I just see a ton of others and I'm like, gosh, there's a lot of touring going on. Yes, and that's where I do think, you know, some of these go-to practices in other industries have trickled down into books and that, you know, you're seeing some of the same content pushing and promotion that you might see for a lip gloss or a nail polish. And again, I love, you know, I'm, I, I like beauty products like the next gal, but that is sometimes what feels inauthentic to me as well. There, the editorial piece seems to be missing. Um, and this is probably a good time for me to just insert a little thing in here about one of the trends that we're all watching in publishing right now is what really is the power of TikTok. You know, we know it's been making some books hit bestseller lists and sell, and it's been getting incredible, you know, opportunities for authors to get publishing contracts and to have huge success and to break out of the noise of, you know, some of this older traditional way of going through a publisher and getting a book published. So I think that's an exciting, interesting social media platform. For those of you listening, you know, a lot of people talk about book talk all the time and how they're discovering books through book talk. And so that's another place where people are mining authors. Sometimes I even call them innocent authors because they're thinking, how do I get on book talk? How can I make this work? And throwing money at it isn't necessarily always the way to go for the authentic and real way. So I just say, you know, caution the trending of things like influencers on platforms that, you know, it's like hitting the lottery. I really think it is. You know, the perfect example of that for me 
recently is Kara Hunter, whose book I loved, Murder in the Family. And when I interviewed her, she told me a woman she did not know on TikTok had flipped through her book because she has this really unique format. It's all like transcripts and emails, and it's a Netflix docuseries kind of script format. And so this woman flipped through the, the format on TikTok. By the time Kara heard about it, the video already had 2 million views. And so her book sales skyrocketed. She's on the New York Times oh. list. So, I mean, it's one of those things oh my where gosh. she didn't have anything to do with it. I mean, you know, she, it just happened that this woman stumbled across her book and flipped through it. And Kara reached out to her and said, thank you so much. But I think it's one of those things like you can't pay for that. And there's no way it just happened. So I do think it is like winning the lottery. It is. And it, I, I say, oh, dear, because it, sometimes it happens so fast right. that you're, you're the author and you don't even know what's happening until it kind of goes viral on its own. And so that is the, the, the place where I think right now things are happening so quickly. They are happening organically. And to try to recreate that by you know tossing money at who you think might be a good influencer. I just think, again, doing the research with your team, your agent, your publisher, or even on your own, it's just, it's just a good way to proceed because there's, it's very democratic right now that there are different ways people can sell their own books. But I think authors in particular have limited budgets. And so to think about, you know, is there advice or someone who could shepherd an author through some of these choices? And that's something that I'm not even sure I should say this out loud, but I'm going to since I started, <laughs> I started meandering here, which is, you know, here and there, I have taken on a very small fee as a consultant to some authors that maybe have just had one book published They're They know they need a publicist. They don't have a budget. And I've just tried to play a little bit of an advisory role for them where I feel like the chemistry fits. I have a sense of maybe their career trajectory, knowing maybe who their publisher is or who their editor is, and just trying to be another person at the table giving advice from kind of the PR marketing and digital side to say, you know, no, or yes, this would be a good thing to do. I think it is this this world of things changing and moving so quickly with the trends that sometimes authors do need someone to run their ideas off of. But I think that's so interesting on TikTok because I am too old for TikTok. It is just not my platform. But I see it all the time with all the publisher things now, or anytime I sign up for any kind of book tour thing or to participate in something, everything says, are you on TikTok? Now they ask about Instagram and Twitter and sometimes now threads. So it's not the only thing, but it is interesting to see that it is definitely becoming more and more popular. Yes. And I will say one thing that for those of us that are not fully embracing TikTok or don't want to embrace it at all, one of the other trends that I'm noticing and I'm really pleased to see is LinkedIn has become much more, and we talked about this in terms of our own connection, but it's become much more um, accessible for content around softer topics. So it's not just recruitment, getting a new job, looking at data. It is a place where, you know, people are meeting and talking about books. And for an example, for one of my clients is, you know, we're seeing a lot of cool things happening on LinkedIn for Audiophile Magazine conversations between narrators, commenting, people connecting, not necessarily for, you know, that hard sell for a job, but rather more community and more information sharing. So that's been a very, I'm going to say, surprising post-pandemic development. I'm going to do a little alliteration there. I think it's a little bit of um, the humanizing of how we all work. And at, it stayed, it stuck around. When I post about books there, I usually have a decent response. Sometimes no response, but sometimes all sorts of people commenting. 
So it really just depends. But yes, I think it's definitely a worthwhile platform. It doesn't take long to take whatever you have put elsewhere and repurpose it for there. Right. And for certain authors, sometimes I work with doctors or, you know, authors that are um, on the academic side. And for for those types of books, and those are obviously mostly nonfiction, we, we've gotten some real traction. Oh, that's great. Well, what's the favorite part of your job? As you can probably tell, I love talking. And so I love pitching my authors. A lot of that now, uh, most of it is actually done on email or, you know, in some format of written communication. But I'm not shy about picking up the phone if if it's a great contact that's known me for a long time or scheduling a Zoom. You know, I love to just talk and share my natural enthusiasm. So I would say that's a big favorite. And tied to that is a surprising favorite thing, which is as the podcast producer for Dr. Dan's show. One of the developments that happened over the course of our podcast joining a network is we have bonus episodes. Our bonus episodes are listener questions. So a little bit of like, you know, your your series within your podcast. And we have parenting questions. And I co-host with Dr. Dan. I keep this quiet because I'm usually not the one that I want to put in the spotlight, but I read the questions and I'm a twin mom. So I, I get to give a little bit of my own parenting anecdotes. I'm not a doctor like Dr. Dan, but I've really enjoyed plugging in my mic and putting on my headphones. It's all audio. So I don't, I don't want to be on a video, but I've really enjoyed the conversations. And I think it's because I know by the comments we receive, we're actually helping real people. So it's, it's very cool, instant gratification piece. And then I'm going to say the least favorite part of my job, all my jobs is some of the housekeeping bits that I just have to do on the back end as a small business owner, whether it's memos or invoices or just cleaning out my inbox and spiffing up, you know, some of my folders where you know, I still print things out. Don't tell anyone. I don't, I don't waste a lot of paper, but I do like to have hard copies of certain things. So that, that can be a little bit of the, the doldrums because it's not as exciting. I agree with that. There are parts of owning a business and operating it that are just not as much fun as the rest of it. Right. But we're lucky to get to do it. And it's so fun to be an entrepreneur and to run my own business and be my own boss. So it, it all balances. Exactly. And set your own schedule. Absolutely. What trends have you seen in the publishing industry recently? We obviously talked about TikTok. Anything else? I feel like I want to, with some humility, talk about how through my work with Audiophile Magazine, we are making some inroads, making sure that the audiobook is part of the overall launch day. So many people don't realize that the audiobook, usually for the big publishers, publishes on the same day as the print book. But the print book, you know, of course, is, is the one that gets all the spotlight. So we have been working with a lot of the publishers just to, to coordinate coverage for the audiobook on the same day as the print book. So that's a little, I'm going to say just personal trend kind of checking off a Laura, an audiophile goal and agenda. And then I really think I'd love to spend a couple of minutes just talking about the trend that you touched on a few minutes ago, Cindy, which is more and more and more is being asked of authors. And although that helps my business, it feels heavy to me because authors are writing the book, authors are positioning the book, they work with their team on things like the cover and the catalog copy and the page proofs. And, you know, they have a hand in the whole birthing of their book. But now, you know, in the way the industry's changed, budgets have changed, the pandemic's changed how we live and work. I just see the authors are being asked to put the hats on of social media manager, 
running some of their own publicity, setting up their own events, and having to pay for all of this on top of travel. So less buy-in, I think, from the publisher side and more responsibility to the authors. So that that's something I'm struggling with because, you know, I, I just think it's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. And I do agree with you. It just seems like so much is being asked of them. I agree. And this is not meant to be, you know, any kind of downer for authors. But again, I think just to rewind a little bit earlier in our conversation, if you are an author listening to this, start early, whether it is you kind of running your social media and looking for publicity opportunities and event opportunities on your own, or if you think you um, have a small budget for a publicist, I think you're going to feel like you are in a position of choices if you start early and you, your work just begins once your book's been accepted and turned in. I think authors have to go into publishing knowing that they're going to be marketers. And I think a lot don't. And I think that really happens more on the small publisher or self-publishing side. But I just get so many messages from people who don't seem to understand how much work is required of authors and how much has to be done. And I, I try to explain, I'm like, that's just what's happening. And I just sometimes don't get very far, I feel like. Well, I, I think you're doing a big service by running this series because there is so much when you pull back the curtain. And I do think there is some mythology and romanticism around what publishing used to be like. You know, there was a time when I started in publishing where there were big budgets and authors were toured, you know, mid-list authors, which are kind of the titles that are not the A-list bestsellers that you know already come padded with a huge marketing budget, all authors were getting some form of a book campaign and no authors were really having to hire publicists. So now we're in almost the opposite world where the top titles are getting the campaigns and then everything else really falls to the author or a very small budget. And so I think it's an exciting position for an author to be in if he or she just again, is planning out six to 12 months and really thinking about goals that are realistic and figuring out, do they have a budget? What kind of time do they have? Do they have a day job? And just how to, how to really balance everything in a way that they're approaching their publication day, knowing that that is not the one day in the life of their book and that many things are going to happen and unfold even over the course of a year or, or more. And so it's a journey and it doesn't sort of end and start around the book coming out. And that, that's one of the things actually in my PR business that has been one of the most successful ways for me to partner with authors. We don't limit ourselves to this expiration date of, okay, a, a week or two before the book comes out, and then three weeks or so, or maybe if I'm lucky, three months or so after my book comes out, that's everything. And if my book doesn't make it during that time, I failed. And that's not it at all. And there's so many opportunities you know, around pub date, after pub date, way after pub date. And authors just, you know, if they're investing in themselves and their brands and they have more books in them, it, it becomes, you know, kind of an exciting thing to maintain. I also think that starting early is wise because I think if an author can get on Instagram, not Twitter as much anymore because Twitter right. seems to sort of be blowing up, but any social media platform and see what other authors are doing. Because I think some authors have gotten very creative in these countdowns to pub day and different things. And I think just take some idea and run with it for your own campaign. And I agree with you completely. Pub day shouldn't be the, the end. But I think it's, it's overwhelming to think about, okay, what am I going to do? But I think a lot of authors are being really creative with the photos they're putting up or the ideas they're putting out or 
different research trips, whatever it's going to be. I think you can come up with something clever that isn't just buy my book, buy my book, it's coming out, it's coming out. I think there are some great ideas. And I think if you start early, you have time to do that. Yes. And I will add to that by saying, you know, if your book has a very specific topic or if there's, you know, a special audience for it, if you're a new author or an author who's just um, starting his or her career, so maybe, you know, you have one book that was published, maybe by a smaller press, you're moving on to a larger press. Remember that that very specific audience is a wonderful place to start. You know, I just worked with a wonderful young poet and um, his book is called Dance Hall. His name is Tim Stabersky. And Tim really, you know, targeted poetry and um, other topics that his book covers. And he has found a wonderful path to getting reviewed to some events. And then he's broadening the coverage and outreach from there. Rather than starting thinking you have to have your book picked for, you know, the wonderful Jenna Bush Hager's new book club, or <laughs> you're hoping Reese will pick your book, which again, we can all dream. And I am all for dreams. I'm all for putting it out there, saying it, having, you know, a little bit of that intention, intention that goes um, with things like vision boards. If you don't say it or wish it, you know, you won't know what opportunities might come your way. But again, back to that idea of, you know, winning the lottery or striking gold, it's really rare. And so think about realistic goals, coming up with a plan and a timeline and a calendar, whether you're doing it with a team or on your own, and finding actual legitimate ways to get your book in the hands of people that you know are going to want to read about it. That's really so crucial. And you know what, you can through your publisher on your own, figure out ways to submit it to Reese or to the Bellatrice Book Club, or, you know, any other number of high profile book clubs, or even smaller book clubs um, that, you know, have a public following. But I wouldn't put all of your hopes and dreams in in that basket. I can't even imagine the number of submissions those clubs must get. I, I really can't either. I think about just what the producer desks look like at places like NPR or the Today Show or Good Morning America or, you know, CBS. And then I think, wow, those people have, there are teams there, right, that, that are looking at books for all different types of segments. Then you think about, you know, a Reese or another celebrity book club, you know, I don't even know where they store the books. I mean, thank goodness people will look at electronic galleys now and digital copies because I think that these places would need a warehouse. If if all the pitching was happening by snail mail, I don't think Reese or Jenna could even walk in the door. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to ask you if you feel like those clubs are helpful, but obviously based on this conversation, we know they are. Do you have a favorite? You know, I think they are helpful. And I will say, you know, my personal reason reason for loving the book clubs goes back to the original one, which was, you know, and still means so much, which is Oprah's book club. The idea of a person with a platform and reach shining a light on reading and books and authors and talking about stories to me just feels like it's such a win for all of us. And so I just think it's a great thing. I mean, folks get caught up in the celebrity names and in the publicity about how a book will land on the list. But I just think, wow, you know, to have some of our, you know, media world and social media world devoted to something that we read and hold in our hands or on our Kindle or listen to, it feels right. And it feels like something that, you know, I want to continue to like stand the test of time. As far as favorites go, I can't pick just one. Just like, you know, picking your favorite child, Cindy, it's like, I just, I love them all for kind of what they do. And I, I voraciously read 
the roundups of all the books that are picked every month. You can go to, I know like Book Riot does a roundup, I think Publishers Weekly, where, you know, they might just say like, these are the book clubs for this month. But, you know, even seeing who Barnes and Noble's picking, because I am constantly adding to my own personal to read or to listen to list. And sometimes I'm really aware of a book. And then other times something's kind of past my radar. And I find that, you know, it was put on, you know, Natalie Portman's book club or something, which for a while, I I had some friends that said to me, Natalie Portman has a book club. (laughs) Like, you would be surprised by how many book clubs there are. So um, I'm not going to pick a favorite, but I will say Oprah, even though she, you know, is doing it, it, it differently these days. I find that I line up at different times with different ones of them. I always want to see what they've picked too, not necessarily because I'm going to read it, because I just want to know what's out there and what everybody's going to be talking about. And then I want to see what hits the New York Times based on what's been picked. So I just think it's just interesting to see all of that. But I find that GMA probably I line up with the most. But then sometimes for a while, I'll look and I'll be like, oh, I love the last three Reese, or I really like the last two Jenna. So I find it just really depends. It's fair. To, it's fair to kind of, you know, pick and choose. Um, that's what they're doing, right? So it's just, a, again, another resource to find out what what might be, you know, my next read. Right. And just to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening. Absolutely. Well, now is my favorite question to ask. What have you read that you recommend? Well, you know, you had given me a little heads up that this was one of your questions. And my gosh, I was all over the place thinking about it. So what I ended up doing was I decided I was going to tell you what I just finished reading and why, and then um, throw in a few kind of fun recommendations on top of that. So if you can believe it, I just finished this past weekend. So Sunday was October 1st. For the first time ever, I read Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic, which I loved. And I, I had seen the movie. I know there's a series. And I just, you know, I, I felt like I the time was right. Why haven't I picked up this book before? So I devoured it. And now I'm planning on reading the whole series, which is perfect for October and spooky season, which is when we're recording this. And um, I am not Alice's publicist. I have nothing to do with promoting her books. I did meet her in person. I've read her some of her other books um, at a party for an author I'm going to mention in a minute. And she was as lovely as you might imagine. But believe it or not, I finished the book and I just happened to see on social media, I think it might have been yesterday, that a special anniversary edition, print edition of Practical Magic is coming out tomorrow on October 3rd. So I think it was just aligned by the planets and other things for me to finally read the book. Have you read Practical Magic? I haven't. I have read The Invisible Hour, her new one, which I loved. And I actually interviewed her, which was like, the coolest thing ever. And she was so nice. Like I just loved her. I was so nervous and she just could not have made me more comfortable. It was the greatest conversation. And then I've read Faithful. And I think those are the only two books of hers that I've read. And I really liked both of them. Well, you know, if you're, if you're thinking of thematic reading, I would say dive into practical magic and, and kind of follow it through. And I too felt very nervous when I met her at a publishing party and was tongue tied because I've read a bunch of her other books. And she was so nice and, and set me at ease and, and just just so lovely. So I'm just kind of being really honest and on trend and theme with that. And then um, that segues into why I'm going to recommend the next author. So the party I was at where I met Alice Hoffman was for a dear friend of mine. Uh, her name is Laura Zygman. And Laura is a former book publicist who went on to write incredible novels Um, Her big one was called Animal Husbandry or is called Animal Husbandry and a movie was made based on it, Ashley Judd. But her newest book is called Small World. And 
it, it's just a beautiful story um, about family and sisters. And Laura and I had some conversations about special needs and I have a special needs son. And so part of the research and thoughtfulness that went into that book, um, it holds a really special place in my heart because Laura in real life did lose um, a sister who had disabilities at a very young age. And that really um, affected her life and her sister's life as the two sisters that lived. And Small World is fiction, but it touches on real life, real emotions. And it's just a, like a book that to me validates how life is beautiful and messy and unexpected. But then knowing Laura personally as a friend, it just takes on another level. And, and I realized, you know, I met Alice at Laura's pub party for this book. And then it took me all these months later to pick up Alice's book that I had vowed to read and I had just bought that night. So kind of all comes together. And Laura, you know, like I said, she's just a real writer a real friend. And she she absolutely doesn't do any of the self-promotional PR that I think she should for herself. So I'm using this opportunity to give her a little uh, free Laura Rossi publicity. I've never, She's never been a client. She's just been a dear friend. Um, and then the other authors I just want to shout out are really connected to a piece of my work world that's extremely important to me, which is I always try to have some kind of pro bono or volunteer work, Cindy. So before the pandemic, I was doing some uh, volunteering at a local at my local NPR station. Um, and that all went away with the pandemic and hasn't quite come back in the same way. So during the pandemic, I raised my hand to volunteer for the authors Jenna Blum and Caroline Levitt, who founded A Mighty Blaze, which is an online literary platform and community that brings together writers and readers. And I did not know Caroline. I did not know Jenna. I knew them and I knew their books as a fan and again, a voracious reader. And I said, you don't know me. We're all home. What can I do? I helped launch a Mighty Blaze, and to this day, I still do some pro bono publicity work. And I would say that you know Caroline Levitt's novels, as well as Jenna's novels. Um, Jenna writes historical fiction. Uh, she has a beautiful memoir about her dog Woodrow on the Bench, and then Caroline just writes lovely fiction. And I would say picking up a title from either one of those authors would be you know a real treat for anyone listening. Well, and Caroline just released an article not too long ago about her new book. And how she's written about her family, even though the book is fiction, she's included her actual family's names in it and why she did that and how she had not troubled, but an uncomfortable upbringing, not a great relationship with their family. It was very interesting. And then I love Jenna Blum. I've interviewed her several times for the podcast and she is wonderful. I love Woodrow on the Bench so much. I'm so glad to hear that. And I thought, you know, our publishing world is such a small world. I, I thought there's a chance that you're going to sort of, you know, nod your head um, for all of these recommendations. And, uh, you know, it's delightful to be able to kind of pay it forward and, and shine a light on authors that are friends, colleagues, mentors, and just, you know, cool humans. It is. And it's so fun to see the interconnectedness because Alice Hoffman also recommended Laura Zygmunt's book. Oh, that's so cute. I love yeah. it. Well, they know each other. Obviously, she was at her party. Um, and so, yeah, and that was a connection that I was not aware of until I walked into the party and, you know, like brag moment, the party was thrown for Laura by her friend, Anne Leary, who is another incredible author. Um, I also love all of her books, but it was one of these, you know, kind of worlds colliding. And I tried not to be um, sitting there like with my mouth hanging open, meeting all these authors, because you would think 30 years in publishing that I still don't, you know, kind of get that starry eyed look. But I'll tell you what, you know, meeting authors, talking to them in person or you know, in other formats, I still get excited. And I am the biggest fangirl, even though I'm in the industry and a publicist, 
that has never faded for me. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, I just, I love my job. I plan on, you know, doing this for as long as I'm uh, able to and blessed to be able to be in this industry. But I think that's the coolest thing to have a job that you love this much. It's rare. And I never take it for granted. And I talk to so many people all the time about pinch me moments are, are, are constant for me. So, you know, hard work pays off. If, if young publishing uh, folks are listening and, you know, figuring out how to launch their own careers, you know, I think it is, it's a trying time right now, but, you know, working hard, showing up, putting in the time and the hours, um, you know, I, I think it, it does pay off. There is a piece about following your passion that I, I absolutely say is true. But I also know, you know, having lived and tried to survive in New York City for a long time, that paying your rent also matters. So I'm hoping that there continues to be change with equity, diversity, you know, fair salaries and all of the things that, you know, 30 years ago were really important struggles that I was facing along with a lot of my colleagues. And um, sadly, you know, some of those battles are still being fought, but I do think there has been some progress. And I just think that the energy and the drive of new people getting into the industry, you know, is going to continue to hopefully, you know, raise up all of us. I agree with all of that. And I'm so glad that you could come on this behind the scenes episode with me, Laura, and I hope you will come back again. Thank you, Cindy. I'm smiling widely. It's an honor to be on your show. You do such a great job behind the scenes as well as kind of, you know, showing us parts of authors that we know and love that, um, you know, we might not hear about otherwise. So you, you do a lovely job of prepping your shows and um, taking us kind of between the covers and into the writer's offices. And this series in particular, I listened to for just getting more information about the industry and maybe colleagues that I didn't know about, even if I know them on a personal level. So I hope we will come together and talk, have more book talk or podcast talk or some combination of the two. I hope so too. Thank you again, Laura. Thank you. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. I hope you'll tune in next time. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?